This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 255. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined this evening by Mr. Matthew Marister. That is correct. How are you, Mr. Bowman? I'm fantastic, man. <laughs> you know, I had a good weekend. Uh, took my son to his first three-gun match where I saw he uh, was a participant That's as opposed awesome. to a uh, viewer. And yeah, he did. He did. He did great. So that was that was awesome. How much fun did he have? <laughs> uh, off the charts fun. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. Yeah, he, he, the very first stage he shot it was a five stage match. He gets done and he's just like, you know, just all hyped up. You could just you could just sense it from from his uh, body language. So it had very, to make you pretty proud. <laughs> yeah, it was great. So we had a good time. That, and I learned yesterday that, and this is both kind of like happy and sad, uh, that I I am not having to go to the East Coast this week uh, for the NRA Carry Guard Expo. And so while I am sad that I won't be able to go to that and see some people I was planning on seeing and, uh, you know, that that stuff, well, I'm also going to be able to spend another weekend at home with my family that I thought I was going to be gone for. So so that's a definite awesome bonus so <laughs> uh yeah. for those of you though that uh, were planning on being there and you were hoping to see us and and all that uh sorry that uh that we won't be seeing you and more so we're sorry for the massive hurricane that is bearing down on the east coast right now especially for those of you in north and south carolina virginia michael. i'm sure is going to get yeah michael here is uh, in south carolina so brother we hope you are safe batting down the hatches for sure <laughs> For sure. Uh, it's going to be a doozy uh, by all accounts. So uh, our, our prayers go out to all of those of you in that region of the country. And, and frankly, it's going to impact a large chunk of the country, uh, you know, probably areas even as deep in as Tennessee and um, uh, maybe even possibly, uh, you know, West Virginia. And uh, you might even get some rain possibly pushed in from this, uh, Matthew, out there in Ohio. I'm sure we will. And even if we don't get it, we will get it from somewhere else. I mean, it's been raining for like 10 straight days. So. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, seriously, we hope everyone out there is safe. And uh, hopefully the uh, Concealed Carry podcast brings you some comfort while you are hunkered down for a couple of days and you got nothing better to do. <laughs> so, um, also, uh, today is 9-11. And... Well, that requires us to recognize that fact and remember it, because, you know, never forget, right? And so because of that, I got I to gotta turn off the music, right? Just going to have a moment. Where were you on 9-11, Matthew? Uh, I was actually on the USS Boxer um, coming back from a Westpac deployment. I was uh, I was in the Marine Corps. You guys probably knew that already. but um, And we were right off the coast of uh, Camp Pendleton, California, waiting to offload the next morning. 
And uh, I remember I was in the in one of the the lounges there, and it was all crowded, and I was playing dominoes, and uh, on the TV, little news blurb comes up, and they show the the planes, and nobody like believed it, and uh, it's just pretty pretty crazy. And and the weird thing was was that. I don't know if they still do this in the Navy or whatnot, but there's there's a program called the Tiger Cruise where when you're mm. coming back from Westpac, they had have a friend s- do that. Yeah. So, it, and it's really cool. They let like family members meet the ship, uh, meet their loved ones uh, in, in Hawaii, and then they they ride the boat back um, to, to mainland. So, um, it's pretty cool. And, and my dad was on the boat with me at that time uh, on the tiger cruise. So we both will always know where we were. Um, cause mm. we were right there and it, it's just, it's one of those things that you'll never forget where you were. And, uh, and, and just, it's, it's a change the entire world. But, uh, what about you? My, my story is not nearly as awesome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think I've shared it on the podcast before and, um, the very first thing I remember is that um, I was working in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I commuted over from the, from Idaho each each day, each morning, and each evening. I made that drive over the Teton Pass, and uh, you know, it's it, it, that could be an exciting drive. <laughs> Those uh, that are familiar with that pass and what it can be like, especially in the crappier months of the year. Um, <clears throat> It was a normal day, although I think I got on on my, on my way to work a little bit later than usual. Um, but I remember I was driving, and I worked with my dad, and we drove together. Sometimes it was his vehicle, sometimes it was mine. And I remember the very, very first radio report that came through. And and that's all we had. And that's all I had all day long. It was shocking to me when I actually made it home uh, to where I could actually see a television and for the, for the first time, saw the images of the Twin Towers and the planes and everything coming down and the aftermath and all of that. That, that was shocking to me. It was shocking enough as it was. I felt like I was just like in War of the Worlds, you know, uh, where yeah, the, the old classic where, you know, this, this whole thing happens and it's able to proliferate the way it does because the only means that people have to communicate is primarily, you know, as far as media is the radio. And that's like the, how that whole day felt. But uh, uh, there's two two things I remember. It was you know, like very, very poignantly. Number one was the very first reports coming over the radio and we were still finishing our commute, my dad and I. And I think I was driving and he was in the passenger seat. And I remember at first it was kind of like, oh, a plane hit, you know, one of the World Trade uh, Center buildings. And it was like, okay, very first report, we thought it was like a small plane, like a Cessna, you know, some uh, hobbyist type pilot, you know, just a recreational pilot that maybe had a heart attack on the at the wheel or something, you know, or at the stick and, and uh, ended up accidentally flying into the building or whatever, just got too close, who knows, right? So that was the first thought. Um, the second thought was not too long later, realizing that it was actually a bigger plane than we thought. And then the, the other thing is I remember... I, I have this, like, I wish, I almost wish I had a picture, but, uh, which I don't, but in my mind's eye, I remember this image of, I worked construction. Okay. And we were on this construction site and we had a radio, a job site radio that, you know, kind of blared music and stuff all day long. And instead on this day, there was no music played. 
Um, it was news radio all day long and we just, we didn't get a whole lot, whole lot done that day. You know, we'd maybe work for a little bit, but we'd always end up coming back and congregating around that radio as new and updated news reports would come in. And as the towers, um, came down, I remember us sitting around on buckets, five gallon buckets, like paint buckets, you know, and just gathered around that radio, just in shock, you know, and, um, that's where I was, you know, nothing, nothing special, not, not as cool as being on a ship, being in the <laughs> Marine Corps and all that stuff. But interestingly enough, you were with your dad and I was with my dad and I didn't realize that till now you've shared with me a little bit of your story, but I didn't, I didn't know that aspect of it. Yeah. That's cool, man. Like it, it's, it, and it's weird to, to, cause not often do we get to talk to people that were at the same place with us in, in these time, you know, in these like pivotal times, so to have a loved one that you can always reminisce with that is is kind of special, I think. Yeah. Normally, normally we like to reminisce about happy things. This one mm. was definitely the complete opposite of that. However, it was a uh, historical event and date in our history, and we will always remember that. At least I hope we will. And of course, that's the big thing today, right? Never forget. Um, mm-hmm. I hope we never do. Uh, each year, uh, we, we take a few minutes and uh, I don't know, half an hour or so we sit and, and talk with our children about it. And I will be doing that with them a little bit later. So, um, the older ones kind of understand it mostly, you know, the younger ones, well, they will understand one day. So anyway, back on track. Thanks folks for, uh, being along with us, uh, for that little bit of a detour um, on the episode here today. So anyway, um, it's just important we get that out. And then also we we just remembered uh, the lives lost, lost and also the heroes uh, present uh, that day and everything that, that was done um, to make the world a better place. And I also hope that our country can be re, you know reunited in the way that it seemed that it was for some time uh, following that event. seems that we are more divided now than ever. Speaking of which, we'll be talking about some so-called divisive issues as it relates to guns <clears throat> a little bit later here. So, um, but first, today's episode is made possible and brought to you by the Law of Self-Defense webinar that we have coming up here in just a little more than a week. Wednesday, September 19th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. There's two options, basically. So the Wednesday, the 19th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, and then Thursday, September 20th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. So basically, there's whichever one of those works best for you, all right? Chances are for most people, it'll be the uh, Wednesday night one, but you know some of you that might work during uh, you know work during the evening hours, but you're off during the day, maybe the, one, the Thursday afternoon option works for you. But uh, basically, what this is, is a webinar featuring Andrew Branca, who we're going to hear from in just a moment with the uh, this week's case of the week. Uh, and it'll be a, a webinar where we're able, um, Andrew will be participating, Jacob will be there, I believe I will be there as well. Um, and it is basically, I mean, a webinar, there'll be a little bit of a presentation, but mostly we want to hear questions from participants and give you the opportunity to get, uh, a, you know, this kind of feedback from attorney Andrew Branca 
uh, on matters relating to the law of self-defense. So it should be pretty, actually, I know it's going to be a really great webinar. Any of those of you uh, familiar with the podcast and familiar with the episodes where Andrew has been on with us before know that uh, he knows his stuff and that those are really good uh, episodes to go back and listen to. In fact, if you haven't listened to them or if you if it's been a while since you since you listened to them, you might consider going back and as a prep, uh, you know, to this webinar, you might go back and uh, re-listen to those episodes. I'll see if I can dig up what the episode numbers are, those are. I'm pulling it up right now. But anyway, the point is on September the 19th at 7 p.m. and again on Thursday, September 20th at 1 p.m., there's two different opportunities to... This, this is a free webinar. There's no cost. Uh, there is... I think you have to re- register. Um, and so with that, you want to go to a special link lawselfdefense.org. It's a little bit different. Andrew's main site is lawofselfdefense.com. This is a special site set up for this purpose. lawselfdefense.org forward slash quiz webinar. That's where you can get registered today for that free webinar. And we hope that you'll participate and that we'll see you there. All right? Do it. Yep. So lawselfdefense.org forward slash quiz webinar. That's the link. Go check it out. We'll see you there. And also, I'm sporting today the new Guardian Nation 2018 hat. That is something that was sent out to um, all Guardian Nation members that participated in our Happy Birthday America sale. And or also any Guardian Nation members that joined during the period of that sale. They got this Guardian Nation 2018 edition hat for free. And I finally got mine. So here it is. Check it out. All right. So... That's Any, cool. I noticed that. Uh, good, good. That's a cool hat. Uh, Mitch uh, is one of our team members on you know here at our company. Good guy, and uh, yeah, he's only he, he wasn't here last year, but this year, uh, how long has he been working for us now? I don't remember exactly, but he designed the hat, and I I think it's a good one. It's a winner. So good job to Mitch, and uh, hopefully those of you that qualified to get the hat have gotten your hats, and that you're loving them. Wear them. Wear them with pride. So anyway. All right, so I'm um, still working on pulling up those episodes of the past episodes that Andrew Brink has been on with us on, but but right now is the, is the time to play for you this week's Case of the Week from Mr. Branka. So let me make sure. Okay, here we go. I've got it ready. Here it is. Thanks for joining us for the Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. This Case of the Week is provided for educational purposes only. This Case of the Week, Williams v. State, is out of the Georgia Supreme Court in a decision handed down just last week and involves a man whose claimed warning shot earned him life in prison, even though the bullet he fired wasn't proven to have harmed anyone. The facts involve two groups of men stopped at a red light who get into a lethal confrontation. The defendant was in the front passenger seat of his friend's Ford Mustang with others in the back of the car. The defendant and others in the Mustang were armed with handguns. A Dodge Challenger rolled up next to the Mustang, containing several other men. The two groups had some pre-existing animosity and began to yell at each other. The verbal confrontation escalated when people emerged from the Challenger to fight. A few from the Mustang got out in response to fight with those people, but the defendant himself remained in his seat in the Mustang. 
The defendant would later claim that he believed one of the men from the Challenger possessed a gun, and that as a result of this perception, the defendant fired a single warning shot through his open window into the air. After he fired, one of the others in the Mustang with him fired a shot that killed one of the men from the Challenger. The defendant would be charged with numerous offenses and was convicted of felony murder predicated on aggravated assault and sentenced to life in prison for felony murder concurrent with a 20-year sentence for the felony assault. The defendant appealed his conviction on several grounds, two of which we consider here. First, he claimed the judge committed reversible error when he instructed the jury on the definition of felony murder. A defendant commits felony murder when someone dies in the course of a felony being committed by that defendant. So you can be convicted of felony murder without having pulled the trigger yourself, or if you pull the trigger, without your bullet having harmed anyone. If your firing of that shot was a commission of a felony during the course of which a death resulted even indirectly. Importantly, there can be no felony murder unless the defendant is first convicted of some other felony on which to base the felony murder, and that other felony must be one specified in the indictment used to charge the defendant. Felonies not specified in the indictment are not to be considered by the jury because the prosecutor isn't arguing that the defendant committed an unspecified felony. At one point, the trial judge instructed the jury that they should consider felony murder based on predicate charges of aggravated assault, aggravated murder, and criminal damage to property. Criminal damage to property, however, was not in the defendant's indictment and should not have been included by the judge in the list of underlying felonies for the jury to consider for the purpose of felony murder. The defendant argued that this error required a reversal of his felony murder conviction. For an error to be reversible error, however, three things must have happened. First, the claimed error must have been preserved by an objection at trial. Second, the claimed error must be an actual error. Third, the error must have mattered, meaning the outcome would have been different if the error had not happened. Here, the Georgia Supreme Court agreed that the error was preserved at trial and that the error was real, that the trial judge made a genuine mistake. They also concluded, however, that the error didn't matter. The jury had concluded that the prosecution had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was guilty of aggravated assault, a felony that was specified in the indictment. Further, the prosecutor had never argued that felony murder should be based on criminal damage to property in this case. As a result, the jury almost certainly based the felony murder conviction on the aggravated assault warning shot on which they had also convicted the defendant. So the trial outcome would not have been different even if the trial judge had not mentioned criminal damage to property as a predicate felony for felony murder. A second basis for appeal is that the defendant's lawyer didn't request a jury instruction on defense of habitation. Georgia Statute 16.323 lets you use deadly defensive force to stop a person who is attempting to violently or tumultuously enter a habitation for the purpose of offering violence to persons within. Georgia defines habitation rather broadly to include any dwelling, place of business, or occupied motor vehicle. The defendant argued that his lawyer should have requested that the jury be told he had the right to use or threaten deadly defensive force against the men from the challenger if he reasonably believed those men were attempting a violent and tumultuous entry into the Mustang for the purpose of offering violence to those within the Mustang. This would have justified his threat of deadly defensive force, his claimed warning shot. He had no luck, however. The Georgia Supreme Court notes that Georgia has not yet established any precedent that defense of habitation applies when you're in someone else's habitation, and in this case, the car was not the defendant's. 
As a result, the defendant's lawyer did not make a legal error in failing to request a defense of habitation jury instruction on the facts in this case. In conclusion, the Georgia Supreme Court held that this defendant's warning shot was sufficient on the facts of this case to warrant his conviction for felony murder and his sentence of life in prison. You can read the original decision by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash Williams. You may be aware that Law of Self-Defense is conducting a detailed legal debunking of the documentary currently airing, Rest in Power, the Trayvon Martin story, so that we can offer you the truth about the trial of George Zimmerman and the events surrounding it, rather than the propaganda of this documentary. You can access our debunking for contributions as low as $10 by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash Trayvon. In addition, we have a funding goal of $15,000 that will trigger a personal interview and contribution by attorney Don West, one of Zimmerman's attorneys during that trial. We're only about $1,000 short of that goal. So you'd like to help us achieve that goal with a contribution as low as $10? Simply point your browser at lawofselfdefense.com forward slash Trayvon to learn more about this opportunity. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. Very interesting case there. Uh, thanks, uh, Mr. Branca, for reviewing that with us on this week's episode. Uh, Williams versus, versus Georgia. Boy, um, lots wild. of things went you know, south for that, for that guy. Um, you know, obviously we don't need to rehash it much, but the real obvious thing is, bro, why are you firing shots out of the window of the car as a warning? Yeah, that was, <laughs> I mean, like I said earlier, we were talking earlier and I said, like, there are people that have done far worse than what this guy has done and, and they're not in prison. And so and it doesn't take away the fact that, you know, this guy was legitimately convicted um, by you know, at least, um, how they followed the law, but it just shows you like how, how crazy criminal law and, and prosecutions can get and how confusing it can be. Um, so yeah, just try to stay away from, uh, it's, it's hard kids growing up and, and doing stupid things and you don't think about how it's going to affect you. Um, but if you are a kid and you're listening, you know, and I mean a kid like, 20 years old, 25 years old, just <laughs> stay away from like some 25 year old listener out there. Matthew is offended right <laughs> now. Me, you call him a kid. <laughs> to me, it's a kid, you know, but like, you know, just, it's crazy. The, the stupid things we do and we're, when we're younger and, uh, and how it can totally affect our lives. So, yeah, I don't disagree with that for sure. Yep. Well, Hey, if you enjoy uh, these segments from Andrew Branca on the podcast, uh, Case of the Week segments, um, let us know. And uh, also let us know what you think about some of these cases that come up. I think they're pretty fascinating, and I enjoy listening to them for sure. Speaking of, I I told you I was going to look up the two podcast episodes uh, where uh, Branca's been on with us in the past that you might want to go back and listen to, especially if you're... Well, it would be good any, anyway, regardless if you can make one of these webinars next week or not. But uh, go back and listen to episodes 148 was the first time he was on the podcast. And then episode 212 was the other time. So 
you might you might check those out. So um, let's now get into this week's news, and I got to start off, Matthew, with uh, this is a, a story that was pretty close to home for you. Uh, mm-hmm. Cincinnati police release footage of gunman firing shots at anyone he sees. Last week after we did the uh, news podcast, um, I don't remember if it was, let's see, what day was that? Was that Tuesday or Wednesday last week? All I know is it was shortly after we did the podcast. It was maybe the next morning or next day that that uh, active shooter uh, thing happened there in Cincinnati. And basically he had a, a lone man uh, that we don't know exactly all the motives. We do know that he had a history of, of poor mental health. Um, somehow, I mean, he was able to, it wasn't, apparently his health, his, his mental health history was not such that, uh, he was on any sort of like prohibited list or anything to buy a gun. Uh, so he was able to purchase a, and I'll tell you, cause I did a little bit of research. I was curious. Um, he, he purchased a Taurus PT 809, a nine millimeter, uh, semi-automatic from Taurus. It's a fine, fine piece of equipment. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to d- diss on uh, Taurus, but uh, what, 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 why I bring that up was, is because I kind of had my suspicions a little bit that the gun that he used may have not been, I mean, not to say that high quality guns or high performance guns, you know, as far as like Glocks obviously have a history of performing well, uh, not to say that those can't malfunction. Am I right? You know, we, we see malfunctions from virtually any type of semi-automatic handgun out there. Um, but I just wondered, and I was able to find another news story uh, where they showed the weapon that was used, and it was a Taurus mm-hmm. uh, PT-809. You can buy them for about 200 bucks. <laughs> so, by the way, if I was going to buy pick one of these versus a high point, I'd pick one of these. I, I do think they're a lot more of a refined firearm. But uh, not necessarily having, they don't necessarily have a proven history of performance or reliability. So this man uh, was able to uh, uh, shoot a number of people. Three people uh, were killed. Um, unfortunately, he had uh, just the one handgun as far as we know. Um, he was carrying with him a couple hundred rounds of ammunition, almost all full metal jacket, some hollow points. I'm not sure what he had in his gun. I'm assuming hollow points, but uh, I thought it was funny that the media made it a, a big point that oh he was packing around all this all this ammunition, but it was all in like boxes and stuff. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I get it. Like it definitely adds to the story from a media perspective. Like, boy, he was prepared. He had his Taurus PT 809 and 200 and some odd rounds of FMJ ammunition. He was carrying with him, mm-hmm. but he would have been very slow to reload that gun. So anyway, um, what's, what's really fascinating about this, uh, active shooter event is it happened, uh, it took place in a bank, uh, downtown Cincinnati area, um, pretty high population area or high density area. Uh, police were nearby and they were on scene very quickly. And from the time of the first 911 call to the time that they fired the shots that dropped the, the dropped the man, dropped the shooter, uh, it was like just a little more than three minutes. Um, at that point, uh, when they engaged him, uh, his gun had jammed. Excuse the phrase for those of you that are that are you know <laughs> anti-jam phraseology, whatever. Um, 
the, his gun malfunctioned and he was, uh, but he was shortly thereafter dropped by gunfire from police. Uh, we have some body cam footage from some of the responding officers that is pretty harrowing as far as you just see how quickly it develops. So I've commented quite a bit now. I'm, I want to hear from my Ohio, my Ohio <laughs> boy here. And Rob Beckman, by the way, I might be having him on the podcast here soon, Matthew. Maybe, maybe I was actually thinking about doing it this week because this is so new and relevant. Um, but Rob Beckman, who's been on the podcast before and is one of our instructors out there in the Cincinnati area, uh, reached out and said he'd like to you know share some things. And so I don't know if Rob, if you're watching or listening, but uh, I'll be reaching out to you, buddy. We'll, we'll probably get something set up because uh, I definitely would like to talk with you about it. But what are you? What are your thoughts, uh, Matthew? Yeah, just really, really quick. A couple of things that I took away um, was, you know, you mentioned about um, him having extra rounds, but not in magazines. Right. Um, so I'm thinking probably mentality is he was going to kill as many people as he could um, and then maybe barricade himself, reload and then, you know, continue on his attack. And, and, the, and the fact that the police were able to engage him before he was able to barricade himself um, probably you know, was ended up being able to stop him a lot quicker because it took him off his, you know, probably what his goal was, was to just continue until he was out of ammunition. Um, and so I, you know, I, the fact that they were there in three minutes is undoubtedly the reason why, you know, there, there were three people killed instead of 13 or, you know, 20. Um, so in the, the video, the body cam video is awesome. Um, it really, you know, uh, it's awesome to be able to see how cool and calm, um, responding officers stayed. Um, it, one thing that I noticed that was interesting about the, the shooter, um, the whole time he's walking through shooting one handed. And we talked about this a little bit ago and a couple of podcasts ago about one handed shooting and why people just tend to, when they default to a position, they go to one-handed shooting and, and not normally people that, you know, are practice, you know, uh, um, practice a lot or shoot a lot. Um, you know, they tend to try to get to two-hand position, but most of novice people or people that are just responding really quickly, they go to that instinctual one-handed shooting. He did. And, you know, um, it's just, it, it's just something I, I noticed mm -hmm. um, because we had talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but yeah, it's just, um, you know, another thing about having a secure zone that prohibits guns. Well, if you only have, you know, a metal detector or, you know, an unarmed security guard, there's when that person wants to penetrate your safe zone with a firearm, who's there to stop them, you know? So I think, you know, when we're talking about gun-free zones and stuff like that, the only way it works is if, you know, you have somebody there to stop somebody who potentially would come into that, uh, you know, area with a firearm to cause harm, you know? Yeah. And so this is a perfect example of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't want to, you know, totally dissect this whole thing because I think we'll probably have another episode where we maybe do do that a little bit more. And probably why the why the reason we'll maybe focus on this a little bit more uh, than maybe some other active shootings is because of the amount of information we have about already uh, mm -hmm. as far as we have not just the one, but there's I've seen so far two body cam uh, uh, angles from two of the different op officers. In fact, the one that I saw first was of a female cop 
and she fires a number of shots through the glass from outside of the bank into the bank at the bad guy. And in her angle, you see another officer that is in front of her initially, and he sprints across this opening over to another point of cover and kind of puts himself really at risk when he did, did that. I, I, I recognize, I mean, I think he got out there and, and couldn't see the bad guy just yet. And then once he got out kind of in the middle, then realized, oh, shoot, he's right there. And he ran the rest of the way, of across, the rest of the way across, and he was fine. Uh, he got a couple of shots off as well. But uh, it, it's just really, really harrowing, and there's a lot of things that we can look at and learn from there. One thing that we definitely see in the uh, female officer's uh, angle as another cop shows up and he's got his AR-15, he's got his patrol rifle, and uh, it appears to me, and I've watched this, I've gone back and I've watched, rewatched it several times and watched it in slow-mo just to confirm, it appears to me that he shows up to the fight without a magazine in his gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's yeah. a little bit embarrassing uh, for, for him, unfortunately, uh, but more importantly, like, it was very, very scary. I mean, like, he could have really been... Uh, in a bad position, in a bad way, you know, having a gun that wasn't ready for the fight and uh, could have gotten himself hurt uh, and not have the ability to respond. Now, he, he recognized the air pretty quickly, uh, ditched the, ditched the, the uh, unloaded carbine and, and pulled out his pistol. But the point is, is like the big lesson that I would just like to highlight right now for today is make sure you come to the fight prepared for the fight. <laughs> That's the big lesson. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. A couple of legislative updates. From the NRA ILA in Arizona, the BLM plans uh, or has a plan that would open new areas to hunting in the San Pedro Riparian National Conservation Area. And uh, this is a 58,000-acre area in Arizona that previously has not been open to hunting. And they are looking at now opening it up to hunting. That's basically it. That's all the story is. All right. That's good for hunting. That's awesome. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and hunting also equals expanded gun rights to a degree, right? You know, so this is, this is good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have my own personal experiences having lived in a number of places where the BLM controls so much land as far as experiences with the BLM. And me and the BLM a lot of times are not friends. But anytime the BLM does something like this as far as expanding more uh, publicly owned land for public use, it usually makes me happy. Now, I get that there's some lands we want to protect and conserve. I get that. But I also think we – I think we also don't um, – people don't understand that there are ways to use the land and still conserve the land, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of just locking it up and not letting anybody in there. You know what I mean? So anyway, this is cool. Good, good, good for the folks down in Arizona. Now, another story out of California, the Del Mar Fairgrounds board of directors meeting on gun shows Tuesday, September 11th. So actually earlier this morning, as we were recording this, there was a big meeting um, at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. Um, this is in basically Del Mar, California. Okay. And, uh, so there, there's been gun shows going on there for years and it's a big deal. Um, but right now people are trying to shut it down. And so today was a hearing. I think there's probably still an opportunity for you to, uh, let your voice be heard. You can write them directly. You can call, you can, uh, contact them via Facebook and uh, particularly if you live in that area or if you're a Californian, you might consider contacting the board 
of the Del Mar, Del Mar Fairgrounds and voicing your support for the gun show there. All right. So what, what, the, uh, what our opponents would have, you, have the people believe is that this is unregulated activity, that, that you know, this is you know, the, you know, the classic gun show loophole exists there, and that there's all this uh, back alley dealing going on at the gun show, and that it's making our streets less safe. Obviously, we know that's not the case. So contact the fair board and let them know your support of the, con- con- continuing to allow the gun show to operate there. Absolutely. That's a big, that's a big gun show for San Diego County. Like always, always been there. So, um, it's a big, it's a big deal. Yeah, for sure, man. Good stuff. That's basically it as far as legislative updates this week. I know it's, it's a light week this week in that regard. Um, all right. So next up, Washington times reports on the NRA school shield program, which has been in existence since, uh, 2012, shortly after Sandy hook, um, they, they're just basically announcing that they have awarded $600,000 in grants for school security projects. This to private, private and public schools, both in 23 States. This is not insignificant. Although I can tell you that $600,000 doesn't go that far, especially if you're doing major infrastructure, uh, upgrades. I mean, even just upgrading, uh, CCTV, you know, uh, camera systems or, Whatever I mean, you can you can drop six hundred thousand in a hurry, but I, I think it's great that the NRA has this program, the School Shield program, and that they are are actively uh, doing things to try to make schools safer. Fifty four grants were awarded. Um, these are going towards things such as uh, let me get to the rest of the text here. I had it pulled up. Um, security cameras, access control, and visitor management systems. Uh, security tents for windows, improved communication systems, emergency medical kits. That's that's great, and mm-hmm. uh, perimeter fencing and life saving training. This is uh, this is great. So there you go. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just one uh, another organization out there doing the right thing. And I think um, the more we see organizations doing this, the more other uh, people might have an idea to say, you know what, I want to start to do something to help, um, raise money to do something similar to this. So I think this kind of stuff can be contagious and, uh, uh, you know, kudos to the NRA for continuing to do this. Yeah. I just, uh, last night actually had another meeting, uh, our final meeting. I've been participating. I've been somewhat quiet about it too, but, uh, at some point I'll probably talk more at length, um, about it. Uh, I'm not sure in what format, but, uh, last night was our last meeting, uh, that, I, uh, I've been participating in this, uh, school and security or the school safety and security task force for our, our school district here. And, uh, we have several subcommittees that are, you know, have been working on solutions and ways to improve the security and safety of our schools, uh, here, the same schools that my kids attend and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, money's a big piece of this. As far as you know, a lot of the things that have been talked about and discussed, uh, whether that is putting more secu- uh, school resource officers in place or security officers, armed security officers, I will tell you this much: that our school district is not recommending to arm teachers. I mean, that's definitely something I would have liked to have seen. We had a pretty, pretty good debate about that. I voiced my opinions at that uh, uh, part of the uh, process as we talked about that and. 
um, you know, would like to probably see more done in that regard because that's arming, at least allowing the option of arming teachers and staff and administrators can be done in a way that doesn't cost very much. But there are, but that's not the only solution that we can look at. There's lots of things that we can look at that would improve safety and security of our schools. And uh, I was actually kind of amazed at all the different solutions we came up with in these different subcommittees work. Um, And, but the one thing that you start to realize though, is that, well, this is a great idea over here, but it's going to cost a lot of money. Like mental health is a big thing. We, We think, you know, it would be a great, great idea to have a licensed, you know, psychiatrist, uh, you know, in every school, especially every high school or middle school, you know, that's helping kids deal with some mental health or at least able to recognize some things and help them get further help outside of the school, right? There's all these things, but putting those people in place, putting different infrastructure things in place, it all costs money. And so kudos to the NRA. I mean, kudos where kudos is, is deserved. And, and here it certainly is to the NRA for awarding uh, over a half million dollars to different schools for uh, helping with some of those things. So, Anyway, Washington Post reports, Levi Strauss, CEO, takes a side on gun control. It's inevitable we're going to alienate some consumers, is the title of the article. Uh, so, and, and this made its rounds, I saw on social media last week, uh, pretty heavily. Um, basically, you have, I think we talked a number of episodes ago, too, about Levi's kind of starting to become... Well, maybe they always were. I don't know. I mean, probably not always, right? But in the last who knows how many years, maybe this, this has been a, a not uncommon for them for some time, but they're just now now becoming a lot more vocal. But um, Levi's is based in San Francisco, um, and basically they have now very openly announced that they are going to start supporting gun control initiatives. Well, they would advertise it as stopping gun violence. Um, mm-hmm. They have pledged more than a million dollars and they are partnering with Michael Bloomberg. Uh, they're partnering with every town uh, and all these other organizations that Michael Bloomberg Bloomberg's behind to help combat gun violence. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, good for them if, if that's what they believe in and that's the stance they want to take. Um, well, good for them. Stand by, you know, your convictions, even if I don't agree with your convictions. And I, I think that they're misguided. Um, their hearts are probably in the right place. I think they probably think that, you know, this will work and this, you know, if we just raise the age of 21 or we close the loophole, you know, it, it'll work. And, and unfortunately we know it doesn't. Um, but you know, I see a lot of people getting super outraged over this. Look, the company, the CEO says, "Hey, we're we're gonna we're willing to lose customers. We don't really care um, because that's what we believe in." So, you know, if you believe in you know that that gun control is not going to work, then don't shop there. And, and you know, um, I, I think. Um, the difference between some of these companies that are, are more vocal in their political and, and, and those types of opinions, as opposed to, say, like um, Chick-fil-A when they got, you know, hammered um, because, you know, they, they were, you know, uh, portrayed as being, you know, anti-LGBTQ and all that. Um, but they didn't actually come out and like 
you know, make this grand announcement that now we're going to do this because it had, you know, that was just their, their personal opinion. And they never, you know, uh, used it to exclude people or say, you know, we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to do this and we don't care if you like it or not. And I, I just think, you know, it, it, good for them if that's what they believe in. But I think, um, as a business, you know, you probably don't want to alienate, um, half the country. You just, it just doesn't make good business sense, but you know, that's, that's what they want to do. So I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. So, I mean, obviously we have a lot of people uh, talking about boycotting them and stuff. And you know what? You you want to do that? That's, that's certainly your right. Um, just like it's their right to, you know, I see this as a free speech sort of thing, right? And I think speech applies to corporations as well. Um, you know, and certainly if I feel like a certain business has the right to say they're pro-gun, uh, which I think they do, then we have to be okay with businesses saying they're, that they're anti-gun. Um, and then we we have the right to spend our dollars there or not spend our dollars there. Now, I'll just tell you, uh, this is like a non-issue for me because I haven't purchased a pair of Levi's in I don't know how many years. <laughs> so, um, not not and I'm, and I'm not planning on doing or purchasing any anytime soon. So, uh, yeah, tough, tough beans. Uh, they haven't lost anything here because I haven't been a customer for a long time, but, uh, it, it is interesting, right? You know, I mean, it's just such a divisive thing to get it to, to dip your toes into. And actually in this case, they're kind of jumping in feet first. I mean, this is no small, small pledge. Uh, they're pledging a, a million dollars to, uh, basically go for, uh, pro gun control initiatives and um yeah like why 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 do you feel the need to do that well they obviously feel like that that aligns with their ideals and values uh, i i suspect the ideals and values that levi strauss has changed dramatically since 150 years ago whenever it was that they were founded so i i just i you know you have to imagine just how many gunslingers <laughs> were probably wearing levis and packing a six shooter around, you know, and, uh, now this is, yeah, times have definitely changed. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, but this is, this is the battle, right? You know, for whatever reason, guns, guns are viewed as being this evil thing by a certain segment of our society. And that's, I mean, that's certainly what you have to be thinking in order to take this, take a stance like what they've done here is that we have to do something to limit these evil things from getting in the hands of people, uh, you know, and that's the, that's their way supposedly of combating gun violence. Well, moving on, Real Clear Politics reports mass shootings in America, anatomy of a hyped statistic. This is kind of an interesting article. Matthew, I'd like to you to take the lead on this one. Yeah. So basically and the article is very in depth and, and it kind of breaks down um, how there are a couple different um, studies that were done to come up with these talking points or, or that have been referenced in a lot of these talking points from, you know, president Obama and, and other politicians, as far as when they say uh, the United States has more uh, mass shootings than any other civilized country or developed country um, that, you know, when they throw around statistics about, um, you know, other, other countries do not have the same gun problem. Um, in, 
So it, it goes into how they came up with those figures and how they're actually kind of inaccurate because it doesn't cover all the, all the incidents and the, the way it, the ones it does, um, it doesn't accurately um, represent those instances, incidences and how the data from other countries is flawed and, and things like that. So um, it's actually, it's very good because it shows and they go through and talk about a, a bunch of just different mass killings and things that, that happen long before um, people, you know, started counting mass shootings and things like that and show that it's really not um, uniquely American. It's really not um, a, a problem that is like, um, destroying our country you know obviously it's completely bad but the the way they present it is is in a hyped up way as the uh, as the title suggests but the way they presented this information originally and the way you hear it over and over is in this hyped up almost like the end of the world is coming and there's nothing more um, damaging to our country than mass shootings. Nothing like it's the number one killer. It's this, and it just simply isn't. So, yep. um, and I think it's timely that this came out um, because last week I think it was we talked about the statistics of um, where the or maybe it was the week before um, of where the United States ranks as far as uh, numbers of homicides committed with a firearm and, and where it actually ranks among other countries. Um, I think we covered that. And um, in, in the United States, although they have, we have more, um, when you break it down to per capita, um, we're, we're, we're like 20th. Um, and so uh, the thing is, is, you know, the way, always be concerned or always be careful when somebody starts throwing around figures and you take it um, at face value without doing any sort of like understanding, because you'll understand that figures can be twisted and changed to support any sort of narrative. And, and you know, I'm sure there's pro-gun people that do it that, as well. They twist certain uh, figures and things like that to show gun, you know, uh, possession as as more favorable. But the fact is, you really don't have to twist the facts. You just have to present them, and and and, and it will show that you know um, gun control doesn't work. And and um, but yep, you know this this is a, a really powerful article, and it it cites play, it cites different um, uh, studies and resources. It doesn't just give you a bunch of you know numbers to just repeat and. You, you don't know if they're true or not. So, well, let me highlight some things here. So, uh, first of all, the uh, the research that's re- being referred to that is uh, you know suggested that it is false or inaccurate uh, was compiled by uh, uh, Adam Langford is his name. Okay. Interestingly enough, every time he's been asked to provide backup documentation to provide evidence as to or support for you know his findings, uh, he's refused to basically. To, to be transparent about his research into mass shootings. So what he suggested is that, uh, you know, he only found so many mass shootings that occurred outside of the U.S. and, you know, and then looked at how many occurred in the U.S. and said, well, okay, so clearly you the U.S. is responsible for uh, a terribly large amount, percentage of mass shootings that occur throughout the world. But what's interesting is you got John Lott, who is the founder of the Crime Prevention Research Center, who who 
asked Langford to provide his uh, backup material, and Langford would not comply. He would not. He would not offer that up. So Lot began his own study, uh, which. Uh, this is, once again, this article is on realclearpolitics.com. They just obtained the study from John Lott last month, and here's what they found. <clears throat> I'm just going to quote from part of this article. And this, you get, you gotta, this is buried pretty far down. you got to go a long ways down to find this, all right? So I'm, I'm saving you a lot of time here. It says this, In the last 15 years of the 47-year period covered in the NYPD and Langford reports, Lott found 1,448 mass public shootings and 3,081 shooters outside the United States. This means he discovered 15 times as many mass killers as Langford in less than one-third the time frame. So that, that's the key, because Langford is using this 47-year period, and Lott is saying, in just 15 years, I found over 3,000 mass shooters outside of the U.S. It also means that instead of having 31% of the world's mass shootings, the United States has fewer than 3%. The key takeaway, takeaway, takeaway here is that with 4.4% of the world's population, the U.S. has less than its share of mass murderers, a finding that utterly undermines the prevailing narrative. Take the Philippines, for example. It is one of the countries for which Langford provides statistics. He says it had 18 mass shooters from 1966 to 2012. Lott says the Philippines had 52 mass shootings cases from 1998 to 2012, carried out by 120 gunmen. In Russia, Langford had the total as 15. Lott found 34 in the tighter time frame. In Yemen, it was Langford 11, Lott 29. In raw numbers, the U.S. still made the top 10 on Lot's list, but barely. Leading the pack is India, followed by Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Algeria, Colombia, Nigeria, and the Philippines. Sudan has the dubious distinction of coming in 10th, it says here. Um, so there you go. Yes, I mean, is, does this excuse the fact, you know, does this make... And it any less severe the types of shootings and mass murder events that we've had in our country? No, uh, but the media would ha- and some in the media and researchers such as this Mr. Adam Langford would have you believe that the U.S. has a unique problem with mass murder and with mass shootings, and it is not all that unique after all. When you compare and look at some of these other. Uh, numbers and statistics found. I mean, yes, it could be pointed out that John Lott is biased and that he's definitely pro-gun, but I would suggest, based on the other research of his that I've seen, it's probably pretty straightforward as far as these numbers that he's presenting here. So, anyway, interesting article. It's a long one, but if you want to read it for yourself, uh, you can find the the links in today's episode show notes. Uh, The short link for that is concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 255. All right. So yeah, go, go check out uh, the news stories from today's uh, episode and especially this article uh, by checking out the show notes as always. And you can also find the links to our episode sponsors there as well. So concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 255. Dallas police seek manslaughter warrant against officer who killed neighbor. Now this is actually kind of this particular story that we pulled is kind of dated because 
that that warrant has been issued and she is she has been charged with manslaughter. This is quite a story that that just came out a few days ago, uh, just before the weekend, I think. This is pretty crazy. Okay, so basically the situation is on uh, I think it was Thursday evening that you had a Dallas police officer who came home from work after a shift and she mis she mistook her apartment. Okay, so she she thought she was going into her apartment. In the re- in reality, she actually went into a neighboring apartment that that you know, was inhabited by a neighbor instead. Now, obviously, that must mean that that neighboring apartment was not locked or secured. I mean, I assume she just walked in, right? Interestingly enough, like, does she not lock her own doors? So, would you not think that something's not quite right if you go to put your key in and? I don't know. There was just some, that, that little bit there just didn't quite add up. But either way, the story goes that she went into this apartment. It was actually her neighbor's instead of hers. So naturally what happens? She encounters somebody inside because they're supposed to be there, but she doesn't apparently know that at the time. She believes that she's in her apartment and thinks that this is an intruder. She is in uniform still. She has her sidearm on her. She draws, she fires, she kills I think he was 26 years old. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Tw- yeah. 26 year old. I don't know how. Botham Shem Jean is, is the guy's name. He's a young, young, uh, uh, young man. And uh, apparently from St. Lucia. Yep. That's where that's at least that's where his mother. Yeah, exactly, that's, that stood out to me, bro. I, I knew that about your wife. So I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So this is a problem, right? As far as. You shoot somebody you're not supposed to shoot. Mm-hmm. You shoot an innocent person, basically. Um, yeah, there might be some exceptions in some situations, but this is definitely one where this officer, no matter which way you slice and dice it, she is in the wrong. She's in the wrong place. She's in the wrong house, the wrong room, with the wrong person. You know, she she is in the wrong. Regardless of, like, in her mind at the time, hey, there's somebody in my apartment uh, and I'm scared. And this dude may very well have been like, you know, it's late and he comes out of his room. Like who the heck is in my apartment, mm-hmm. you know, maybe looking to defend himself and maybe doesn't notice that she's got a uniform on or whatever. Uh, maybe he's starting, you know, like maybe he actually appears to be somewhat threatening because wouldn't you, if someone's in your house when you're not expecting that. And so she draws and shoots him. That's a problem. What, what's your take, man? Yeah, I think there's a couple things uh, to unpack in this story and to think about as far as how we respond to things. Um, And so I I actually had a conversation with somebody on social media, go figure, um, because people were jumping to conclusions and saying that this officer murdered the guy and that, you know, um, there's no doubt about it. There's no way that there could ever be any other charge than murder. So the police are covering this up. And this is another example of why police get away with murder. And I said, look, that's, I'm not defending what she did because what she did is indefensible. Um, but I'm saying, I was trying to explain that, you know, 
um, there's plenty of ways or there, there, I, I can think of just because I've responded to calls where people have been in the wrong homes and, and things like that. And, and they're not always, um, suffering from mental illness or, you know, drugs. Um, this, this woman had been in, and I'm not playing devil's advocate. I'm just going to explain to some people that might've jumped to the conclusion that this is a murder charge and, and, and automatically, and just, I I've responded to a bunch of calls similar to this, but, um, the, the fact is, is this woman was on, lived in this apartment for like a month. Um, she went to the wrong floor and there were some sort of access key cards that were able to access certain doors, um, you know, the, the doors and things. So it could have been, she went to the wrong, uh, level. She gets off. She's been working a 12 hour shift. She's tired. She hits the key fob. Maybe it, it the door was already unlocked. Maybe she thought it unlocked the door or maybe she, the door was already unlocked and she still thought it was hers and thought, Hey, maybe somebody's in my apartment, like ransacking sure. it or robbing it. Right. So, or, or burglarizing it. So she walks in to find somebody in there and sure enough, her suspicions are confirmed, right? Somebody's in my apartment. And then this guy responds like, what are you doing here? Yep. Maybe a fight ensues and she legitimately feared for her life. Right. And, and, and so she, she fires a shot. It doesn't negate the fact that she's in the wrong place and wrong. I totally, totally understand. And it doesn't negate the fact that, um, you know, she didn't have a situational awareness enough to walk into the place and immediately say, this is not my apartment. Now, I don't know, maybe they're all set up the same. And these are like um, extended stays where they all have the same kind of floor plan, same furnitures in there, almost like a hotel. Um, but you know, there are, there are ways that this could happen, that, that this, a tragedy like this could play out. And so, um, I'm just, you know, I would just say, and, and I've had, you know, relatives of my wife contact me because this is a big thing in St. Lucia, it's a small Island and say, man, how did this happen? And what's going on over there? And, and it's like, I know the emotional distress because this guy was a great guy, but, you know, and so it's, it's terrible that he lost his life. But, um, yeah. I think that if they're going to, if they charged her with manslaughter, obviously at this point, at least the evidence didn't substantiate that she went in there purposely with the intent to kill this guy, or, um, there was something egregious, at least they can't find it at this point. So sure. not to say it won't happen, but, um, so all those people that are out there on social media already prejudging this, yes, it is a completely stupid, uh, 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 mindset that this, this woman was in, however, uh, being stupid doesn't necessarily equal a murder charge. And I think it also uh, should, you know, th make us think about how do we respond if somebody comes into our home, um, and how, how do we respond? You know, like sometimes we, we talked about this before police come to ins investigate an alarm call or something. How, are we automatically going to think anybody who comes to our door is there to kill us, you know, or where we just in, you know, almost like a reactionary, we shoot at the person at, at the door or do we, you know, put the totality of the incident together or circumstance together and try to disseminate, is this person a threat to me? I think we should do the latter at all costs. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I'm not taking the side here for the police officer. If it sounds like that, 
you know, so be it. I'm not taking the side. I'm just looking at the the, the facts and, and we have some facts here, not everything. And who knows, maybe it's going to come out that these two knew each other and it was a, you know, heat of passion or a lover's quarrel. I don't know, but at least at this point, you know, let's, let's reserve, um, our jump to it's a murder charge and maybe she, maybe she's totally, uh, on the hook for man. I mean, I don't see how she could possibly not be charged with manslaughter and not suffer some, uh, terrible, terrible repercussions for this because she was in the wrong, um, down the road, uh, many times. So yeah, that's my long winded well, speech. Sorry. I mean, manslaughter charge is completely warranted in this case. Now for those, if I haven't seen too much of this necessarily myself, but I haven't been necessarily looking at it that closely. But if there are those saying that she should be charged with murder one or anything like that, that's, that's ridiculous because there's certain things that have to be in place to, I mean, there's, there's reason why our laws are written the way they are and why the justice system works the way it does. And first degree murder is reserved for, you know, the most heinous of murders where, I mean, this is, this is a sick individual that, you know, is intent on doing harm that premeditated, meditated things that planned it all out and then executed it. In this case, I mean, I, it look, it appears on the surface to be a mistake. And yes, guess what? Just like you make a mistake with your vehicle and you kill someone and you can be charged with manslaughter, uh, even if it's involuntary, uh, you know, that's still manslaughter and you could still spend a long time in in jail because of it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think this is completely warranted, even if it's an honest to goodness mistake. If we're carrying a gun, there's a higher standard for us, right? You, you, you can't make the mistake. You have to be certain that you're going home to the right home. You got to be certain that you're getting into the right vehicle. You got to be certain that you're living to the standard that is expected of, of a, of a law abiding, responsibly armed American. Like I hope all of us are. And you know, that's, that's just the expectation that it's upon us and that we take upon us if we choose to carry a gun. All right. And we understand that the risk therein is that I, if I am not, fully prepared. And if I am not ready, and if I'm not using my brain a hundred percent of the time when I'm carrying this gun, that I, it, in the case that I make a mistake, well, then I, I have to owe up to that or own up to that. I, I've got to accept the consequences for, for the mistakes that I make with that gun or yeah, while absolutely. I'm carrying that gun. And that's what's happened here. All right. Question from, or a comment from Jefferson. He says, unless all apartments were furnished, painted and decorated identically, she probably should have picked that up right away. Not being there, we have no clue and can only speculate. Um, it's a fair point, you know, I mean, like, and I kind of thought of that as well, but you know, if it's, if it's late, it's dark and you come in and you haven't had a chance to hit the lights on and you're, you become aware that some, somebody is present, uh, or you just barely hit the lights on and you're just starting to try to sort out what's going on. And, and next thing you know, there's somebody that's coming at you. I mean, you, you just never know how you're going to react, respond, or whether you have the time to process everything that's happening. Um, it was Rob, uh, Beckman, our Cincinnati instructor that pointed out that, and I had, I had missed this in the reporting somewhere, but, uh, and you touched on it, Matthew, that, that the, this apartment had key fobs or key cards or something like that. And she lived on the third floor, but she, she ended up on the fourth floor accidentally. And, uh, you know, I, I actually, I can see how that would happen, right? Where if you failed to lock your door, um, you, cause I mean, there could be a problem here if, 
for some reason, her key card was capable of opening her door and the dude's door upstairs. That's a problem, right? Uh-huh. Um, that shouldn't happen, and I'm going to assume that that's not the case, uh, but that it could be more likely that a door was left unlocked, and she swipes or holds her fob or whatever up and thinks automatically, you know, here's a beep. Oh, it's open. Hits the door, goes in, you know, next, and, and seconds later, the you know, it all breaks down. So th- these sorts of things can happen so fast. Anyway, mm-hmm. we don't need to keep uh, beating on a dead horse here. Uh, it's, a, it's a mistake, a grievous mistake, and that is just the opportunity for us to learn from it. And hopefully uh, you, you've learned something from this incident. Robber and customer exchange shots at convenience store. This is our first uh, uh, justified save uh, story this week. Um, PANews.com is the site, the news. Uh, it says here, I don't know, whatever. Uh, this is a uh, story out of Beaumont. Hold on. I'm trying to get switched around here because we were just in Texas and now we are in... Where is this at, Matthew? Help me out. This is... Uh, where are we? Um, I'm trying to pull it up myself. Texas. This is Beaumont, also in Texas? Texas? Yep. Okay, cool. All right. Sorry. I thought. Anyway, Beaumont, Texas. A robber and customer exchanged gunfire Sunday evening during an aggravated robbery at a at a convenience store. Officers were called and they responded around 5.44 p.m. At at the Smiles convenience store, there a suspect dressed as a black male wearing all black, a hoodie, and and bandana. almost said banana. (laughs) And bandana. Five foot eight or five foot nine. This is very specific. Slim build and carrying a silver and black revolver entered the store. Police said a customer saw the suspect robbing the clerk at gunpoint, ran to his vehicle, and retrieved a firearm. The customer shot at the suspect through the front glass window and into the store. The suspect fired back, then shot the glass out of a west side door to exit the business. Whew. The customer was not injured, and it appears the suspect may not have been injured either. Uh, and as far as we know, the store clerk was not injured as well. This is quite a story here. You know, so basically the situation is robber in a convenience store, a customer outside the store sees what's happening, goes to his vehicle, retrieves a gun, and then goes to the front window of the store and fires through the window, but apparently misses. Bad guy shoots back at him and misses, and then bad guy escapes out a different window by shooting it out. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, I'll I'll hit the the one that is probably first on your mind is, dude doesn't have his firearm on his person, right? Probably in a vehicle holster or in the glove box or whatever. So keep your your firearm on you because obviously, if if you walked in on this, you could become a victim of the robbery itself or hostage or whatnot, and you have a firearm, but it's in the car. So keep your firearm on you. Um, you know, another thing is shooting through glass is very difficult to be accurate with, right? Like a lot of these shop glasses are very thick. And if you're on an angle to, to the, to the glass, it's really going to affect the impact of where your rounds are going to hit. So, you know, you're taking a, a shot and making it more difficult. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, everybody has their own keys or indicators that cue in you as, is this going to be an incident where I intervene? Um, and everybody's 
you know, uh, little check marks or little um, things that force them into action are different. And so, um, but I would, I would propose that anybody listening, um, if you don't think about what cause, what would cause you to intervene if you're outside a building, outside a convenience store, and you see it being robbed, what would force you to actually go in the building or shoot through the, you know, actually engage with this suspect? Um, and when would you probably stay on the phone or call the police and not engage, even if you did have your firearm with you? Um, just, you know, kind of try to think of these things beforehand. Um, so when they do come, you know, yeah. you, you you're able to react a little bit more quickly and fluidly. That's a big one for me here with this story is just that this may, I mean, what he's, what he was doing was valiant as far as, I mean, it's an honorable thing to to say, Hey, I see the store clerk in trouble. It's an armed robbery. So I'm going to get my gun and I'm going to try to respond. I'm going to try to save this store clerk's life. Well, little do we know, but maybe that guns, well, we obviously find out, because it's shots that are fired after the fact, but that that gun may not even be loaded in the first place, or might even be an airsoft gun or water pistol or whatever, right? So, so you know, or that robber has no intention of harming that store clerk as long as the store clerk complies. And most store most store robberies, I think you would would you would concur with me on this? Mm-hmm. Most store robberies don't result in somebody getting shot, uh, provided that the, the store employees cooperate, right? Yep. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, so my point is like, I'm not going to judge this guy too hard, but it is just a little bit of food of thought for the rest of us to kind of be like, okay, you know, like if, if this is you and this is you responding to this type of incident, you are inserting yourself into the situation where you do not have to, right? Um, if something bad did happen to that clerk and you didn't do something to try to stop or prevent it, well, you know, that's you may not be able to be able to live with yourself because of that. I don't know. Guess what? You know, go get some counseling. All right. The because the, the other thing I'm going to say here is. This person, by engaging the robber and not successfully putting him down, or in other words, stopping the threat, and by the way, he did not successfully stop the threat insofar as this guy fired shots at him, the bad guy, and the bad guy then fired shots through another window so he could escape out of different, uh, you know, out of a different window. So in the process of this, however many shots are fired by the bad guy that go somewhere and Mm -hmm. could have struck an innocent person. And by you choosing to engage him and fail to stop him with that initial shot or whatever, then he ends up, that causes him to fire his gun several times. And in the process, somebody innocent gets hurt that, that, that could still, and maybe should be, on your conscience, just as much as if you didn't do anything and the store clerk got hurt. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is not an easy situation to consider or to be in or to, like I say, to even judge uh, in, a, in a fair manner because I wasn't there and you weren't there. But but this is the, it, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about what are the lessons that can be learned? What does this cause you to think about? And what it caused me to think about is that I got to think long, I got to think real hard. Okay, maybe not necessarily long because you might just have seconds to make that decision. But I got, I got to think real hard 
And actually, it makes a lot more sense to think about these things ahead of time. That's why we're doing it now <laughs> in talking yeah. about this story. And, I got to think part, real hard about whether I get involved or not. Yeah, and part of that should be not only tactically, like, can I get involved or should I get involved? But let's say you can get involved and you say, I can get in here and I can take shots. What is the what is the likelihood that you will be able to stop that threat in short order without harming other people, right? And that's always something that we're thinking about. Uh, like if somebody's attacking us, we're going to shoot to stop the threat until the threat's over. But when we're when we're uh, intervening on somebody else's behalf who isn't actively being harmed, right? Like the gun is it's totally a justified you know uh, legal shooting, but they're not actively shooting people, right? Have the gun out or whatnot, demanding money. They're not actively harming this person. So we have to take into consideration right now, we're not shooting necessarily to stop a threat that's moving towards us and we have to just dump rounds. We have to say, I, if, if I involve myself in this, am I going to be able to stop the threat before he starts pulling the trigger or turns on me and starts harming other people? So I think it, you know, that should factor into our decision-making process as well. Totally. Now, Michael here on Facebook has some good, good thoughts. Um, first off, I'm just going to address that he says coming into the store with a guy with his gun already out is not a good strategy. Um, it's probably true. Like if you walked into a store, almost every store, the, the door makes a noise. Maybe, maybe, maybe it even has a chime. So as soon as you open that door, uh, attention is coming your way and judging by where the store clerk is in relation to the bad guy in relation to where you are in the door, you might put the clerk in the line of fire as you then maybe have to, are forced to defend yourself. Um, basically coming into the store is probably not the best thing to do at that point. Tactically. It, it's different if you're already in the store, right? But like, once again, we've talked, as I talked about, you are inserting yourself into the situation and tactically it's not smart to go into that store. So I kind of understand why this guy decided to shoot through the window, but here's the other comment from Michael. He says, shooting through glass could have changed the trajectory and hit the clerk. Absolutely. Now, we cover this in our vehicle firearms tactics course that you can find at concealedcarry.com forward slash VFT if you want to go learn more. But, you know, most of that's shooting through uh, uh, auto, auto glass, right? But the same principles can apply, and store glass might very well be very similar to auto glass depending on the store and depending on that particular glass in that um, – it may have a, a plastic film on that window, or it may be extra thick glass. It could, you know, there's a lot of variables there. We don't know what kind of glass we're dealing with. The fact is you want to have the best chance of your bullet's trajectory not being impacted by the glass. You need to shoot through that glass as square onto that glass as possible. And even then, there is still no guarantee it is going to go where you think it's going to go. Because glass is funny and bullets are funny. And then things just, the real world is, it does not always work the way th we think it will work or the way science says it should work. Uh, so anyway, um, I'm just not sure. I mean, I, I understand why the guy did what he did. I'm just not entirely convinced that it was the, the right thing to do. So anyway, um, moving on. This, this, we're going to cover this story pretty quick, Matthew. Uh, 
I don't know that there's a whole lot of lessons to learn from this other than I just find it to be really interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. One dead after shooting aboard one dead after a shooting aboard a yacht owned by driver in fiery Lamborghini crash. Yeah, let me, let me break the title this down. is completely misleading. <laughs> it's hard. Let me try to break this down really simple. Basically, you have a yacht in the harbor or uh, or marina or whatever there in the San Diego area. And this yacht was owned by a dude that died in a Lamborghini crash in 2016. And I but believe he wasn't in the yacht. Exactly. Just, he, he, he died. He's still dead. He's in the ground. He's not on the <laughs> My understanding is that it was his parents, I think, that were on the yacht. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is, this is a nice yacht. It's a $2 million yacht. All right. Basically, somebody snuck onto the yacht and was going to try to steal it. And I don't know if they didn't think anybody was on it or what, but they, they go on. They released the, the mooring lines. Uh, you know, they were going to try to take it and, and away they go here. You know, they got a $2 million yacht. Um, but, but, but a, a couple was on board and apparently the man on, on that yacht, uh, the good guy had a gun and he shot the intruder. All right. So there's not, and there's, there's really not a whole lot of details specific as to what happened once, you know, once we were on the yacht. Okay. If you're following the story, there's just not a lot of detail there. I just wanted to share the story, Matthew, because we, I think this is the first time we've ever had a story like this where a justified save story occurs on a yacht, on a boat. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And, you know, uh, uh, I uh, this has happened in National City, California, which is, I lived in Chula Vista and their neighboring counties that worked in El Cajon. All, all these places are are in the same area. And uh, and it's weird. I know a couple uh, National City cops, so I'm probably going to reach out. But I'm wondering, and this is just thinking, um, it, since it's on, on the water, um, I saw some Harbor Patrol guys um, in, in the video as well. So I'm wondering, you know, um, Harbor Patrol take this, you know, investigate this crime or is this, uh, hmm. still part of the city because it's not a certain, you know, it's attached to the dock, but then it, it's not attached. So, um, just interesting. Yeah. The whole thing that, is kind of interesting. That's a me. great point. That could bring up some interesting legal issues potentially, depending on the jurisdiction. Hmm. Yeah. You I, never know. Yeah. Hmm. I don't even know how you would address that, but as far as I can tell, based on reading the news story here, uh, the the man, the good guy here, the dude on the boat that was just sleeping there or whatever, uh, is not facing any charges, and it appears to be justified, right? As far as we're concerned, it's justified. So, and, and one one last thing, this the national city I told you got its nasty city and all that. Um, it's, <laughs> it's the city's eighty ninth homicide of the year and seventh in six days. So yeah, they've been busy over there. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, that's 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 a lot of homicides for sure. Yeah. All right, final justified save story. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry that that actually that was from another the next story. Sorry, those statistics. I thought I was reading up on the. Oh, other one. oh, those statistics are well, from this story. Speaking of another city, Matthew, as you're <laughs> railing on. <laughs> and this is where I'm from. <laughs> exactly. The next story is from Cleveland, which means the statistics that Matthew just gave is for his his own hometown right now. <laughs> Go Cleveland. He's had a few homicides this year. Um so this final story, this one's this one's good, okay? This was 
where the title of this episode came from. Man kills armed robber in shootout after his gun is stolen in Cleveland. 26-year-old armed robber was shot to death by a 36-year-old man he'd robbed at gunpoint. Uh, there was not just one bad guy. Okay, it said here that, let's see, or maybe... A group. Uh, there was a group. Yeah. I thought, where did it say it here? Part of a group. Yeah, the, the 26-year-old man was part of a group that walked up to the 36-year-old man, attacked him, and stole his gun at gunpoint. All right? After the 36-year-old man had his gun stolen, he found a way to get his hands on his other gun. <laughs> a shootout ensued, and the 26-year-old man was shot in the chest. He was taken to the hospital where he died. No one else, including the 36-year-old man, was injured during the shootout. Also, no arrests have yet been made in the case. And this is where the shooting is the city's 89th homicide of the year and seventh in six days. Uh A statistic came from. So this is fascinating to me. And this is why we had to we had to save this for last because this is this is really a remarkable example of a justified save where I'm not I don't think I am aware of another civilian incident that where uh, the good guy has to actually use his backup gun. I mean that 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 thing right there alone is is almost a controversy in the gun industry as far as you know should you carry a backup gun? You know right. some people would say, well, sure, why not? You know or yes, and the other people would be like, that's ridiculous. I don't even carry a spare mag. Why would I carry a backup gun? Uh-huh. You know, but this is quite. This is this is boy. This is one of those stories. It's like, hmm. It just causes me to sort of self-evaluate again and be like, maybe I'll rethink my backup gun strategies. I don't know. You know, like what do, what do you think, man? Especially if you're walking down the street at ten thirty by yourself, and there's been seven homicides in six days. <laughs> like uh, I'm carrying a backup gun at that point, right? Like, like you're 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 increasing the potential for you to be involved. But um, what, what I think is really cool, and, and Michael kind of uh, commented on it in, in the previous story um, as far as drawing on a drawn gun, right? So he's a, this guy has a firearm. He actually has two. Um, and I don't know if he's opening open carrying. Uh, open carry is legal in Ohio, but uh, Cleveland's kind of put the kibosh on it, uh, you know, unjustly. But um, anyways, I don't know if he was open carrying or how that they knew that this person had a firearm. Maybe they, they were going to rob him of his uh, wallet and things like that. And then they feel for the gun. They realize he has a gun, but they don't realize they have the other one. So he takes the, you know, the robbers take that gun. And what I think is interesting is that the guy didn't try to do, you know, uh, uh, draw his firearm out and shoot, you know, multiple attackers that already have their guns drawn. He said, you know what, I'm going to let them take this gun and hopefully that appeases them and hopefully it buys me an opening or opportunity to go to my backup gun. Now, I don't know where he had the backup gun, but this is kind of interesting. This guy was robbed. And so they found one gun, but the other. So it kind of implies to me that maybe this other gun was in a hideout uh, on his body that was not typically searched if he was going to be robbed, right? Like maybe in his ankle carrying or maybe as a, you know, um, maybe he had a, a deep concealment holster that, you know, most robbers aren't going to, you know, check your groin area and things like that. Um, so it kind of not only does it bring up the question about, do you carry a, a, a backup gun, but where do you carry it? Right. Like um, in a situation like this, where he couldn't get to one, 
um, he was able to get to the other one, which they didn't, they didn't find. So I thought this was just like you said, I, I don't know of any other, um, civilian incident where a backup gun was used, but, um, this is obviously the, the prototype, you know, um, incident where he did everything correctly, you yeah. know? So it, it was pretty interesting when I saw this, I was like, oh, we got to get in the show. Uh, it's it's a crazy story, man. So are you carrying a backup gun? Are you going to carry a backup gun because of this story? Now, I'm not one that usually is going to change, you know, dramatically the way I do things just because of one, you know, story, one incident, because there's always outliers. And I, I think this one probably is somewhat of an outlier, but it does provide some context and some potential fuel as far as like, you know, it, at least now there is, I can at least point to at least one story where a civilian had to use a backup gun in self-defense. And before today, I couldn't, I don't know if I could have done that because I wasn't really, I don't think I, like I said, to my knowledge, this is the first one I've ever come across. I'm sure it has happened elsewhere, but this is a, this is a great story. So now I do want to go back and address one final thing here due to a comment from, uh, from Michael. He said, but is a self-defense shooting a homicide? Um, and that's a, that's an interesting point because that last story said that that uh, shooting you know, it was a justified shooting where the good guy shot the bad guy with his, um, he shot he shot the bad guy with his with his backup gun, right? And the and it said that this was the 89th homicide in the city for the year, right? And so this is, this is a fair point because I, I, Michael, before you even commented, you made your next comment. I knew exactly where you're going with that, okay. um, because is it fair to classify it that way? And I would say what I would say is that I don't think it's fair to classify this in the same category as all of the other killings that, you know, murders that have occurred. See, homicide is homicide, right? The simple definition of homicide is person killing a person, right? And there's no, there's no qualifying to that statement as far as whether that killing of a person was done in a, a good way, meaning a, justi- a justified self-defense sort of way, or was murder. And murder is an unjustified homicide of a, of a person, Right, uh-huh. so is it fair to classify that way? I would say no. Um, is it accurate to say it the way they did? Yes, but it's not fair, right? Because then you say that all of these homicides are equal, uh, and they're not, right? So that's a fair point, you know, Michael. And I'm glad you pointed that out. I we were quoting from the article. Uh, he's saying, you know, hey, the gun grabbers can just use those numbers as ammunition and fuel. And you guess what? The gun grabbers probably don't give a crap either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And, and, that's, but, and that's my total point. Like you hit it on the head, right? Like um, statistics can be misleading if you don't understand where they're gathering or how they gather those statistics. So, you know, who's to say, you know, that they couldn't throw in uh, a DUI crash that results in the death of a pedestrian or, or, or somebody hitting a pedestrian with their vehicle yeah. as a homicide, right? Like, could you stretch it? Sure. I mean, if you want to, you know, nitpick and, and, and 
get into the weeds on on the actual definition. And then you're throwing in and all of a sudden, oh, there's, you know, million homicides. But like, I, I just, so that's why, you know, we have to look at these statistics. We have to take it and understand where are they coming from. And, and Michael, you hit it on the head. Like, if you just look at homicide, like Riley says, the taking of a life by another human, right? Like, period. Um, but is it justifiable? In this case, obviously it was. Um, but, you know, I, yep. it, it, you, you, I'm glad you, you picked up on that. That's very uh, intuitive or very, very good. Yeah. So what would be interesting to find out, Matthew, is how many of those 89, you know, homicides uh, were unjustified or were murder or suspected murder and how many were justified. And frankly, probably a smaller number, right? A, a, a small percentage of that 89 are probably justified homicides or self-defense shootings. And right. the, the bulk of the remainder are probably, uh, you know, uh, unjustified, you know, or murder. Okay. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And I'm, tr- I'm actually trying to think if we have other stories this year, and I think we probably do, of citizens using self-defense and stopping, you know, bad guys. Um, yeah, I'll bet you. I'm, I'll bet you we've covered already this year because it sounds familiar to me that we've talked about other stories in the Cleveland area uh, where a good guy stopped a bad guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but also realize too, when we're talking about statistics, you know, I, I'm more focused on what I like to see is how many good guys stopped bad guys because they were able to have a gun with them, regardless of the bad guy, you know, dying or not, or the bad guy even being shot or not. You know, if if a good guy is able to use a gun in a positive way, meaning they stop something really bad from happening to them or someone they love or care about or some other good person, then that, you know, know, even if that means that bad guy was shot and killed or just shot and injured or you drew the gun and that caused them to run away, maybe you fired at them and you missed and we don't like misses, but that still caused them to run away. Either way, that's the number, you know, I think that we should be focused on uh, that. Unfortunately, obviously that we're as a, as a country, as a nation, as a culture, you know, that it's not put out there nearly often enough. The number of times good people stop bad people because they were able to have a gun with them and, and use it in that way. Or two guns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Backup gun. <laughs> Crazy stuff, man. What a great story. And a bunch of great stories today on this episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast. It's time to wrap it up here, folks. A reminder that today's episode is made possible by Andrew Branca's Law of Self-Defense. And we have the Law of Self-Defense webinar coming up. This is a free webinar next Wednesday and Thursday. September 19th and 20th are the dates. On Wednesday the 19th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time is the uh, first webinar. And then Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time is the uh, the other webinar opportunity. Either one of those you can attend. You do need to register. Go to lawselfdefense.org forward slash quiz webinar. Link in the show notes, which of course today's episode show notes can be found at concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 255. So, we're going to let you go. Matthew, thanks for uh, being here today and and for sharing all your great insight, brother. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, a reminder to you all to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone.
reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.